0: All right, there we go. We are in Hebrews eleven now, and we started discussing verse one last week. Hebrews eleven and verse one. It says, "By now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen." And I, I know we started discussing this, but we may have been on—I can't remember what topic we got onto. So, I—I'm not 100% sure how much we discuss Hebrews eleven one, but. There's an important issue that I want to reiterate, even if we did talk about it last week, and that is the difference between this biblical understanding and what uh, the Greek or Platonic idea, and I want to tell you, you may not have heard about this, but some people claim that the Bible was influenced by Platonic or by Plato's philosophy, but that's not true, and there's a lot of distinctions here, and this is Hebraic thinking, not Greek thinking. Now, the difference is here. The reason some people say that is that Plato made a big distinction between things that are not seen, which he cons- considered this ideal world um, of God and God, where God is, this ideal other, and then this the phenomenal world that we live in of forms. But it, the interest here, if we look at the whole context of Hebrews 11, is not between things we uh, can touch or things that are not seen with the eyes in that regard of being spiritual rather than material. What is of major concern is the um, difference between what is now and the future end times promises of God. Alright. And so what's not seen is the future and the things that God has already promised that He's going to do, including, you know, the, the setting up the future kingdom. Now, I had some quotes here from, uh, and it has to do with our hope. And part of the reason we know that is that the stories of faith in here in Hebrews 11 that illustrate the truth of Hebrews 11.1, 1, are about people who received promises from God that were yet not yet fulfilled, but yet acted on them in obedience. People like Abraham. And it actually says later that they were looking for a heavenly city. So again, it would be the difference between the future promise and the present state of faith that apprehends the promise, believes the promise, and obeys God in the midst of this process of living out life. Here, let me give you a quote to uh, to that end. The contrast implied in the phrase is thus not between the visible phenomenal world of sense perception below and the invisible heavenly world of reality above, as in Platonism, but between events already witnessed as part of the historical past and events yet unseen because they belong to the eschatological future. That was what William Lane said. Now, this may seem a little bit technical, but it's very important to understand these things. The word of faith heresy has for years taken this chapter and redefined it in in very serious ways. I'll, I'll show you as we go through some of the verses how the word of faith people use these verses. And they tend to talk about the difference between sense knowledge and revelation knowledge. And that's not at all even what the issue is here. And what they mean is that what you can get now as a new revelation from God would be the arena of faith versus what you can just see with your eyes. So maybe they're hoping for a better job or they're going to try to use their words to change reality. I'll talk about that as we get to it. So, the real issue is the ability to believe, by God's grace, to believe what God has said and see the significance of the events that of the past, including creation, which we're going to talk about today, and to believe God for what He has told us about the future. And also at issue is the ability, by God's grace, to have faith that enters within the veil. That, that that we are going to a high priest, Jesus Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us, and though he is not seen because he was ascended into heaven, we believe in him. And so that also is a key issue in faith, as is taught in the book of Hebrews. Now I think last week I talked about I talked about this Greek word hypostasis, so we we'll won't go over that again. But, it, but I defined it as reality. That's the word uh, assurance in the uh, New American Standard. I think the New American Standard has a bad translation there. I don't think assurance is a, is a good translation of the word hupostasis. I What is... King James substance. And, you know, the word substance in the King James is a, is a valid translation of hypostasis, But most... Current translations aren't going to use it because we don't want people to mistakenly think that the author of Hebrews believed in Greek substance theories. Okay? Because that, that term almost sounds Platonic. And, um, William Lane, who I, is one of the finest scholars who's written on the book of Hebrews, suggests that the term reality would be a good translation in this context. Did we look up the other times that this word hypostasis was used in Hebrews? Does anybody remember? It was Hebrews one three, Hebrews three, and Hebrews three fourteen. Yeah, Hebrews. Okay, okay. Um, Noel, could you look up Hebrews three fourteen? I don't know. Hebrews three fourteen. Hebrews three fourteen.
1: We have become partakers of Christ. We hold fast at the beginning of our assurance, firm until the
0: end. Okay. I wonder if it's the term assurance there. Again, if assuming that the numerical standard is consistent. Well anyhow, we have this strong uh faith that is based on the Word of God, which apprehends the promises of God, believes the promises of God, and keeps us from going back, wavering, or falling back into the world, or backsliding. Because that was an issue here in the context in Hebrews chapter 10. Well, let's go on. I want to talk about the creation of the world out of nothing. It says in Hebrews 11.2, For by it, that is faith, the men of old gained approval. William Lane again translates the word approval, attestation. Uh, They were uh, attested in the Scriptures of being right with God because they were people of faith. Let me um, cite him. The verb, uh, and then it gives the Greek word, occurs seven times in Hebrews, and in each instance, the reference is to the witness of the biblical record. The exemplars of faith to whom reference is made in the pages of the Old Testament enjoy the approving of faith To whom reference is made on the page, excuse me, the approving testimony of scripture and consequently God himself who speaks by his spirit through his written words. So this approval is actually the written scripture that tells us that these people were approved by God or accepted by God. And then we're going to have examples. The whole chapter 11 is full of examples of people who were approved by God. And the Bible says they were because of their faith. So, before we get into those examples, we are going to begin by discussing God's act of creation and further um, describe the faith that true believers have. And that's in verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So here, faith apprehends the reality of God's creation of the world and is able to understand the significance of it. Now, we're going to make a little contrast with Romans 1.20 to help us see what faith actually does in regard to understanding who God is and what God has done. But this is a verse that the word of faith people have used uh, very abusively, and I think they quote the King James. Do you have a King James, Dean? What does it say in Hebrews eleven three? Uh,
1: through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which were seen, which are seen, were not made of things which
0: do appear. Well, really it really says the same thing, but they they used the King James and somehow twisted it around to say that God created the world through His faith. okay, And and then, because God used faith to create the world, then Jesus had the faith of God. Remember Kenneth Hagin used to say the God kind of faith? And because Jesus knew the secret of having this God kind of faith, Jesus had this creative ability. And then if we have the God kind of faith, we can create through our words the same way that God did. And they use Hebrews 11, 1-3 to, to prove that. That's their, that's their agenda. So, you know, whatever
1: verses they use, uh, they're going to have
0: to twist them to meet that agenda. Yeah. But they, <clears throat> well, I read that material when I was a fairly new Christian and I was taken in by it for a couple of years before I got my head straightened out and I was listening to the Kenneth Hagan in 1971, 1972, 73, when I was a brand new Christian. And that's where I heard these teachings. Alright? And he got those from E.W. Kenyon, whose books I have in my heresy library. And E.W. Kenyon learned it from the Theosophical Society. The same source that Mary Baker Eddy got her teaching. And so it's basically a Christianized version of mind over matter teaching. And so what they're saying, they're really blurring the line between the creator and the created. And so that God, rather than God just being the infinitely all-powerful creator who's unique because he's the creator, God is the first being in the universe to figure out how to use faith to create. And therefore, and then what happened was, the creation was turned over to Satan by Adam, and then God was locked out of His own universe. Um, and then He has to try to get it back, and the only way He does this is when people come along and have faith. Yes. It's kind of like Gnosticism, where
1: they're like looking for secret knowledge or something, and how to manipulate
0: them. Well, it, it has the same idea that they have, That if you gain the secret knowledge, that you know that you have the key to creation. Now, Kenneth Copeland actually teaches that God had no authority on the earth after Adam's sin. Alright? And that He didn't get any authority until Noah came along and had some faith. And so God is basically locked out of the creation and He only worked when people have faith to let Him work. So God is all the time wanting to do these creative miracles, but He can't do so unless we get our act together. Um now there's all kinds of serious problems with that. Is it's not a it's a it's basically cultic. It's so non-Christian, and um, ought to be rejected forthright. Yes. Well, if it, it, it has, you know, if you read Dave Hunt's book, The Seduction of Christianity, that's what he said. He said they're practicing sorcery, and and they're they're borrowing their doctrines from the mind from the mind science cult, and. A guy named McConnell wrote a book called A Different Gospel that he documents that the teaching of the Word of Faith people came from Kenyon, and Kenyon got it from the Theosophical Society. So, do
1: they like eliminate grace, like God working in you? Do they think that it's something like that you can obtain or
0: do I don't... You know, I don't hear them talking about grace. I don't. I don't remember them here ever hearing them talk about grace. But they talk about knowledge all the time, especially revelation knowledge. So the key to having the God kind of faith is revelation knowledge. And if you get this God kind of faith, you can create with your words, just like they say God was able to create with his words. And they use this Hebrews 11. Yes. The biggest
1: problem with their theology is God is not the ultimate source of all things. God had to use faith to accomplish.
0: Right. yeah, exactly. They, they emphasize that God has to use faith to create, where as what this verse is teaching is that God in His infinite power created the world out of nothing. He didn't have to learn some principle to create. And, and, and also,
1: by, in essence, it also requires God to be subject to something outside of Himself or, or dependent on something outside of Himself.
0: Yeah, that, exactly. So it's really a, a, a heretical doctrine of God in the Word of Faith camp. It's it's a blatant heretical doctrine of God and should not be considered Christian, in my opinion. It's borrowing from the mind science cult. And so a lot of there's a lot of books that have been published on that. But I would suggest the Seduction of Christianity is a good one. And another one is a different gospel by Dan McConnell that that really does and and I think it's a, a shameful thing that in our modern evangelicalism this thing is just taken as another version of Christianity that's legitimate and, and it really is not even legitimate Christianity at all okay so let's get back to what it does say now that we cleared that up by faith we understand so what faith is causing here is understanding not the ability to create. By faith we understand. Now um, Diane Bukowski, could you look up Romans one twenty? In fact, let's all turn to that with Diane. Romans one twenty. Because this is a very interesting uh idea that we that we need to discuss because it uses the same word for understand in Romans one twenty as it has here in Hebrews eleven three, as far as the Greek. For since the creation of the world, His invisible
1: attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. He His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without
0: excuse. Okay. So, here it's talking about people who are able to observe the creation, but rather than honoring the Creator by coming to Him on on His terms... They become futile in their speculation. But look at the terminology here in Romans 1.20. It's so similar to Hebrews. For since the creation of the world, so it's talking about the same act, God creating the world out of nothing, His invisible attributes, what does it say? Have been clearly seen. Now, you can't see the invisible, can you? So what it's saying here is that we cannot see God. God is Spirit, right? Right? We can't, you can, remember the, the stupidity of the Russians when they were the communists, when they first put an astronaut up there? And he, and he called back and he said, well, there's no God, I can't see him. Remember that back when in the 60s, one of the Russians went up into space and came back with a report, well, I've seen the universe more clearly, there's no God. Well, no. <laughs> he just fell for, into the trap of Romans what. Okay, he should have gone up there and seen the creation and realized there was a creator. All right, but being how communism was officially atheist, they wanted to make a point. Yeah.
1: Well, the name of that is teleology or design-oriented. Uh, uh, so creation becomes a mirror uh, that we can see God in. Creation is here, we're looking at it, but also God made it, so we're actually able to yeah. look at God by looking at creation.
0: Right. Yes, exactly. There's two arguments for the existence of God that are based on this. There's the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. And one of them has to do with order and the other has to do with purpose. And so, we can see from the details of the universe that we have an orderly creation that is held together, okay, rather than being in utter chaos. And we can see from... um, they call this the anthropic principle that the earth itself was created with the purpose of sustaining life and that there are certain things that that would not ever sustain life if there wasn't an intelligent creator who made it for that purpose, the teleological principle. You're right, Bill. Um, and so what this is saying Romans 1.20, his invisible attributes are seen um, in the creation. But but now, let's add to that what we've learned here in Hebrews 11.3. It says, by faith we understand this. Now, this brings up a discussion between the relationship between faith and reason. I believe that a reasonable person can look at the creation and know that there's a creator. And as a matter of fact, there are some who have. There are some people... Scientists out there who have become uh, believers in creation, but not necessarily born again Christians. They just believe that some sort of deity is the cause of the universe. Yeah, intelligent design. That's the I was searching for that phrase. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> so the intelligent design idea. Okay, and so um, the so faith. What does faith add? Well, faith. we need to know more than the fact that there's a Creator. We need to have a relationship with the Creator through the person of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the beginning of Hebrews and see exactly what sort of faith we need to have concerning creation that would be saving faith. It's one thing to believe that there is a Creator, but it's another thing to know Him. So in Hebrews, it begins like this. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So here it tells us that not only can we see and understand the invisible attributes of God through the visible creation, but that now we know more. God actually came to earth in the person of His Son, and spoke. He spoke human languages. And He, having spoken in the past through authoritative prophets, through the fathers, now He speaks in the very person of His Son. And this One who's speaking, it tells us in Hebrews 1-2, is the Creator through whom He made the world. So now we can not only know there is a Creator which is very important knowledge because the wicked suppress that knowledge not because of a lack of evidence but because of moral failure. And the, those now who can at least be intellectually honest enough to admit there has to be a Creator no, do not need to just stay at that point. See, I, I know you can be at that point because I was for March, April, May, June... I, would four and a half, I would, For four and a half months, I was a theist who was unconverted. In March of 1971, I came to believe there was a Creator through studying science. In July of 1971, I met the Creator through Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? But it's still an important step to acknowledge there's a Creator because then the next step is to see now has this creator actually spoken can we know him yes yeah yeah as a may call it you are acknowledging general general revelation yeah exactly so what faith is doing is giving us an understanding not only that there's a creator but a personal knowledge of Him through Christ it, because we believe He's spoken and we listen to what He said through His Son. Now back to Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now that would be the category Scott was talking about general revelation. Just through the creation itself it's possible to know truths about God. Right? You can know that He's power infinitely powerful by observing the greatness of the creation. You can know that He's personal because an impersonal force is not going to create a world upon which human life exists and is able to rationally contemplate it. Because... <coughs> Unless you are a blatant humanist like Paul Kurtz, and I quoted him in one of my articles recently, a, a truly consistent humanist has to say that even our rational thoughts actually aren't rational, they're simply chemical reactions in our brain. Alright? Because they, to be consistent, cannot say that rationality the ability to think, to love, to cherish, to trust, to do the things humans do, could have evolved out of impersonal forces. They can't, and they and they acknowledge that's not possible. So what they just say, if they're consistent, is that all of these things we just give us the illusion of rationality, but they all they are are causes and effects in operation. Chemical reactions. Even a circular
1: uh, reasoning, because even to be, uh, you know, uh, deceived by an illusion, you have to have some kind of rationality.
0: Yeah, and so then they can't figure out why they care about this enough to write books. <laughs> and even and Paul Kurtz says we have we just we're just honest. We admit we live between two oblivions, and life only appears to have meaning. It's, it's it's very very if you read Bertrand Russell and some of these people that it's very bleak and horrid thing, and and, and that's why that's modern that, that that's to modern rationality. I knew we were going to have a discussion like this when I saw the verse. <laughs> I've been thinking about it in when I wrote this article about McLaren because what there what's going on today is that modern rationality excluding God, came down to that in the 20th century. And and they couldn't live with it. And Francis Schaeffer wrote about these things. In other words, Schaeffer said rationalism means you start with yourself okay, and, and assume a closed universe. In other words, there's no God to speak or to act, but we're in a closed universe, a closed system. And then you just use human rationality to try to figure out life. And it all came down to, after 200 years of that, in the early 20th century, to the Bertrand Russells, Paul Kurtz, secular humanists, life is meaningless, there's no purpose, it's utterly bleak and hopeless, and we can't even know that our thoughts are meaningful. And as Schaeffer pointed out, we couldn't live with that. It, It was too horrible to even live with that idea. And so that was modernism in coming to full bloom. What happened is now called postmodern. And what postmodern does is reject this reason and rationality and suggests that we really can't know anything anyhow. But what we can do is take a blind leap of faith. That we can have a mystical experience We can, whether it's through drugs or through Eastern religion or through hypnosis or through now contemplative spirituality, we can have our own subjective experience of a greater reality and that's all we need. We can have all of the religion we need by simply having a relativistic... In other words, the reality of religion doesn't have to make sense to anybody but me. If I have my experience and it works for me, that's all I need. And so there's a disconnect between faith and reason, and there's just blind faith in anything. Higher power, and it doesn't matter what religion. You can have any religion you want. If it works for you, that's good enough. And that's what it's come down to. And now we have the Brian McLarens in the world saying that that's adequate for Christianity. And it is not. Yes, Bill.
1: Well, it also eliminates the solidarity uh, that happens when you have a unified belief in, in God. Once you're open to anything, you're more easily manipulated by the, the uh, Masonic government we have that, that has an agenda uh, based upon a new world order.
0: Well, is a matter... You, people, you know, just believing Well, not only they direct them; Satan directs them. (laughs) You know, so once you're open to that, Satan will take you wherever he wants. Now, here's, you know, Schaefer wrote about this, by the way. If you, uh, it's a little bit intellectual stuff, but if you, you know, if you've studied some of this in college, you might want to read Schaefer because he's more pertinent now, I think, than ever. And he wrote uh, the books. I would recommend are "The God Who Is There," yeah, "Escape from Reason," and "God Is There and He's Not Silent." And Schaeffer has proven himself to be prophetic. He predicted the mess we're in right now in the religious world. Because there's a disconnect from reason. And so now we have irrationality. Just faith in anything. Blind faith. And, it's, and you can't live it. Now, back to Romans 120. Let's get, uh, what Schaeffer said was the thing that gives us true knowledge about God and about ourselves and about the world we live in, was the Reformation view of the Scriptures. That God has spoken, that the Word of God is inerrant and is true, and that we can know what God says about us, about the world we live in, and therefore, what we observe in this world becomes meaningful to us. Now, I agree with Schaefer. Now, Romans one twenty again. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, we see that there's an infinitely powerful and wise, and I would say even loving creator. Now, we don't know the specifics of God's love, but we do know that God's a loving creator because He created humans with the capacity to love and were created in His image. And we know that He's a rational creator because He created humans in His image with rationality. So therefore, we know those things about Him. It says, "...being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse." Verse 21, "...for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks, they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of the form of corruptible man." So paganism which is the default religion of the human race, if you take humans, isolate them from all history and from all culture, and put them anywhere on the globe and let them develop their own culture as they see fit, they will always end up being pagans. That is the religion of man. And paganism is ultimately creature worship. Somehow or another, we'll worship the creation rather than the Creator. And that's all that's what it's saying right here. You worship the creation. Now, what is Hebrews eleven saying to help us understand Romans one twenty? By faith we understand that the worlds were created by the Word of God, so that what is seen is made out of things which are visible. <clears throat> People of faith now have uh, uh enlightened I'm choosing my words carefully. An enlightened understanding of things that were previously seeable, but we didn't appreciate the significance. When I, in March of 1971, I, through, in my case, it was microbiology that convinced me of God, the heme molecule. When I, when I saw the, on the micro level, what makes human life work, I knew that there was an intelligent designer and there had to be a God who created it. But I didn't appreciate God so as to worship Him on His terms until I met Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to be able to have mental assent that God made the world. It's another thing to have this understanding of faith that would cause us to believe the promises of God and to come to Him, first of all, to come to Him on His terms. Secondly, to not only study His Word, but believe it and obey it. That's where my problem was. Because I knew there was a Creator, but I didn't want Him to tell me how to live. Because I was still a sinner. So I could be a theist and a sinner. But I was going to be a Christian and I had to admit that God had spoken and I can't just do anything I want. Do you see the difference? And so, it says, by faith we understand. So so, um, we uh, God uh, is showing us the significance of who He is, what He's done, and then ultimately what He has said. The worlds were prepared by God. The word prepared means put in proper order. The worlds were put in proper order. The entire universe, the cosmos, is ordered by God. We're going to look up some verses that say as much. (coughs) So the what is seen is made out of things which is not made out of things which are visible. The doctrine of creation that we affirm in the Latin is creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Creation out of nothing. Here is here is a little truism or syllogism that the atheist cannot refute. Either something eternal exists or something not eternal came out of nothing. Now, the atheist and the scientist will admit that the universe is not eternal. If they say, grant them whatever age they want, say, all right, how old do you think the earth is? Eight billion years. All right? For the sake of argument, we'll accept eight billion years. Therefore, you have just admitted the universe is not eternal. It began at a point in time. Eight billion years is a finite amount of time. Now, therefore, you're saying that something not eternal, something finite, suddenly came into existence out of absolute and utter nothingness. Now, I I affirm that that takes far more faith than believing in a Creator, that something comes out of nothing. And they just have to say, well, we think something out, comes out of nothing. How? We can't say. Now, the last time I heard a high-level debate between a Christian and an atheist, William Lane Craig was debating a very intelligent atheist, I think from Harvard or somewhere, The atheist wasn't even an atheist anymore. He was saying, well, there could be some uh, unseen God who created, but it isn't the one you're talking about. (laughs) Well, how's that being an atheist? (laughs) Yeah, he's an agnostic or something, yeah. So he won't even stand up for his atheism anymore because this problem is irrefutable and they don't even want to debate because they they end up being fools. Yes.
1: Uh Pertaining to that, then how does it affect the Christian world? Because now there are so many different thoughts on creation. Does that matter? Like creation, evolution, or you
0: know? Yeah. uh, Well, there's there's an internal debate amongst Christians between the age, the old earth and young earth. But that's more of an internal matter that Christians debate one way or the other. It's not of a huge. Apologetic significance. Other than the, the older people would say that there's a lot, so much evidence that the Earth is old that we're forcing people to take a giant leap of faith to believe in a young Earth, and why put an obstacle in front of them? That's what they say. So, I, don't, I mean, I, I I can't settle. I don't know how old the Earth is. I'll ask the Lord when I get there. I do know He created it. Yes. Years, they come up with a, a, a well, it doesn't matter because evolution can't happen. In gazillion, trillion years. Something doesn't come out of nothing. and order doesn't come out of disorder. So, I don't care, years can't save them. <laughs> they're hard enough. Yes, Linda. Um, you know, I was just thinking about this verse and flash where it said, it's talking about
1: Christ and him all things created and then the next verse is and Him all things hold together. Yes. And I, I had heard that like the design of the atom or whatever should blow up.
0: They don't know how it really, like. Yeah, when in, yeah. Stays together. Yeah, when I was studied at it when I studied physical chemistry at Iowa State, we were trying to figure that out. That was the most miserable class I ever had. Yeah, uh, yeah they well <coughs> they claim to know now, but this is all just conjecture. They, they, what they have done is asserted the existence of certain subatomic particles that have force that hold the protons together in, within the nucleus of an atom. Because, yeah, they should repel each other and blow apart, but they don't. Um, but all of this is quite speculative. Nevertheless, yeah, the Bible says God holds it together. <coughs> so we believe that. <coughs> uh, Jim.
1: Peter, and you talk about the view of the atheist not being created, what I find myself looking at on the ground of everything else is is the moral problem that exists. In the in the fact that that uh, we have people that are telling us to behave that are that are not believing in God, that are believing that this, this world just happened and they're atheists. And this gets back to a moral question that I is can we have true morality on the earth and be disconnected from the creator God. And these a atheists and a whole other thought. You talk about exercise in faith. In, how is that connected to having a real morality that's based on uh, God's intervention in the world and sending us on Jesus Christ? And, and how does that say, well, we're moral people. We believe in all
0: these things in our schools. teach morality. Yet they, they deny the existence of the creator God. Um, yes. Okay. So, uh, for the tape, uh, someone brought up the moral question, and that's another one of the arguments for the existence of God, the moral argument. And One of the debates that I saw, that one really stumped the atheist, and because he had to affirm that morality is real. He'd had to say that Hitler is evil. Uh, and the atheist would have to say, okay, is, torturing innocent people is an evil moral evil. And so when the Christian says, how do you know that, one, that that's moral evil out of your framework of thinking that even our thoughts are just chemical reactions. How do you have morality unless there's a moral creator of the universe? The atheists can't answer. That stumps them. They just say it is. We know morals exist. We don't know why. Uh, So, again, another argument. C.S. Lewis made good use of the moral argument for the existence of God. So, what do we learn? We know that God created the world. And we also know now that God has spoken, that's very important, because now if he has spoken authoritatively, then we can not only know that he exists and certain things about his attributes, like Romans 1.20 says, but we can actually know specifically what the almighty creator of the world says about himself and about us and about his will. So that is the authority of Scripture. Now, our, our job as Christians is to prove that the Scriptures are those authoritative words of God. And there's various ways of going about that. My favorite one is, is arguing for the resurrection of Jesus because of that happened before witnesses. And then showing that these witnesses are credible and these witnesses saw Jesus do miracles and they also heard Jesus teach and Jesus said that the Scripture cannot fail. So now, starting with Jesus and the resurrection, we go from there to the authority of Scripture. Now we know that we have an error in Scripture. Plus, you can take the Scripture itse- itself and compare it to what it says about the world, and we see that it's accurate. We can see what it says about geography, and it's accurate. Yes?
1: prophecy Absolute ways to determine the authenticity of Scripture as God breathed and God inspired. Because, You know, you take even the coming of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament predicting his coming, his death, where he'd be born, and stuff. I you mean, know, just the odds of them happening, I mean, in itself, proves that it? God's Word, that the Bible is God's Word, that the Old Testament prophets were inspired by
0: God. Amen. Prophecy is a very strong argument for the authority of Scripture because only the Bible has prophecy that's actually fulfilled. Um, And what was really a strong argument was when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and dated before the time of Christ, and Isaiah 53 was found in them, to be as they were after. So that got rid of the argument that the Christians doctored Isaiah 53 to make it look like Christ because they found a copy of it before the time of Christ. And so now we know that Christ has prophesied what he did and what he would do, so we have authoritative Scripture. Now, that's why, by the way, I wrote that really strong argument against this Brian McLaren and the emergent church. Because I believe that we're giving away the store by going into mysticism and away from the authority of Scripture. And what McLaren does and what postmoderns do is this. They 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 will say it doesn't matter whether the Bible's inerrant or not because it can't serve as inerrant truth if we're the ones reading it. In other words, our knowledge is so tainted and relativistic, and we are doing the interpreting, and we're screwed up, so we can't know what it means anyhow. And, that, and that's what they say. Well, we can't
1: drive a car or eat
0: food either. <laughs> so they're just not going to know whether it's whether, really. Whether I know. It's, it's ridiculous. I totally agree, Bill. But that's what they do. And so, what, having made it doubtful, uh, McLaren rejects systematic theology. He rejects, he doesn't say he, he doesn't believe in inerrancy. He just says the question's irrelevant because as long as it's us interpreting it, it doesn't matter what we start with. <coughs> so, we can't know what it says authoritatively. And so, what does he have to offer? A mystical experience. And, um, Let me tell you why that doesn't work. This is not new, uh, beloved. This whole thing, Schaefer wrote about it in the 60s, and it was around in the 1920s, and it was called Neo-Orthodoxy, and it came from Karl Barth, and then later Boltman and Tillich and people like that. And their whole point was this. We'll just take a blind leap of faith. We can't really know that the Bible's true. We can't know that Jesus was raised from the dead. We can't know anything authoritatively but we can take a blind leap. So we choose to take a blind leap and we're going to be Trinitarian Christians. There. And now we're going to go ahead and be Christian and have our theology. We took a blind leap. It's based on grounded in nothing other than blind faith. And when I heard a guy who had like umpteen PhDs and wrote 23 books who spoke at the seminary who was, a, was a believing that, I asked him, I said, Sir, how do, how do you and Bart and the rest of you know that your blind leap ought to be a Christian blind leap, and if you would have grown up in India rather than Germany or Norway and had not been influenced by Western civilization, wouldn't your blind leap been a blind leap into Hinduism? And he goes, well, yeah, that's probably true. Well, so then how can we send missionaries to Hinduism? Why is our blind leap a better one than their blind leap? And when you ask, when you get back to this, Norm Geisler helped me understand this. We had him speak in 89 at Apologetics thing, and I got a chance to talk to him, and Norm pointed this out. He says that when you push it, you push the envelope. Keep asking questions. Brian McClaren, why are you a Christian instead of a Hindu? Well, because I believe Jesus is saving planet Earth, and I like that idea. Yeah. Well, what would you say to somebody that liked a different idea? What would you say to a Marxist, although I think he is one, um, what would you say to a secular atheist in Russia who says we think it's perfectly appropriate to rape the environment, build, dump chemicals into what sea did they they destroyed a sea the, the Soviet Union destroyed a whole huge lake by dumping chemicals because they could care less about the environment. Uh, what, what lake was that? The Baltic Sea. Didn't they basically destroy it? So what would you say to them when they say? We believe that we have every right to rape the environment any way we see fit. Brian McLaren can only say, well, I don't like that. Because if he says, well, the evidence is that a world where you take care of the environment is better than a world where you don't, now he's appealing to evidence. So he's not really a fetist. Or a, 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 and after all, he actually believes in evidence. Every argument ultimately ends up going back to evidence so that disproves their blind faith idea. <coughs> yes? Yeah, so just fiat faith, you just, I, I debated another guy at seminary who was a, a fideist is a person who says belief is self-justifying. It needs no evidence. That's a fideist. I ran into one at the seminary. I heard this guy talking and I rebuked him in class. And I tended to do that, or I entered me doing it. And then I said, what you're saying is just pure unadulterated fideism. And I told, and I said, and I said, don't I don't believe that pure unadulterated Fideism. Well, after class, I went over and apologized for being so harsh with him publicly, because I I just riled up, I guess. And and and, and I taught, got the medium, and he said, "Oh, you're right. I am a Fideist." <laughs> he he admitted that I was right in characterizing him. I, and and so what's wrong with Fideism? Turn with me to Romans 10. I believe what Paul says here proves that fideism, faith in faith, or blind faith, or faith without evidence, or faith without reason, is impossible. Because notice what it says here. Starting with verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bonding riches for all who call upon him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now notice this. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now if you take Paul's logic... He can't be a blind faith theist because he says you have to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that's a historical claim. That's a claim that something literally really happened in history. And Paul says they're not going to be able to believe it unless somebody preaches it to them. And so, therefore, he says that people have to hear evidence first and then come to faith having heard the evidence. Is that, am I missing something? I don't think so. And this is evidence for something that Paul said really happened. And Paul said, if Jesus isn't raised, your faith is worthless. So then, what good is blind faith? Yes, sir? I think, well, the Bible the of
1: God hmm.
0: yes pagan polytheist revealed
1: the testament
0: yes yes i agree with you that's that's what exactly what you're saying is what hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says That god spoke in the fathers and in in, in the prophets in many ways, many portions, but in these last days has spoken. So there's progressive revelation through the Scriptures. And now we have the whole Word. But my point is this, that the, the, the Bible doesn't believe in blind anything because it believes that the Bible says that Jesus literally was raised from the dead before witnesses. Now think about this term witness. Witnesses are used in a court of law to establish facts. If all somebody needed was blind faith in anything, why call in witnesses? Witnesses are only there to establish evidence and find the truth. So, I am a very, very alarmed. And the reason I'm so alarmed is that this fideism is being fed to young people in their 20s by Christians. This neo-orthodoxy. And this foolish escape from reason is ultimately fatal. The reason being is that you don't have the Reformation understanding of Scriptures that we can use, we can study the Scriptures, we can use sound hermeneutics, we can know what the Word says, and we can know what God has said. This mystical, you know, go into an older state of consciousness and if you feel good about where you end up, that's good enough for your faith in God, it's not biblical. And we ought to run away from it. Well, we never got to our cross-references. There's one that I think that... that um, uh, Dean, could you look up Psalm 33.6? I think it's uh, the one I had in mind. It talks about this God holding all things together. Psalm 33.6.
1: By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His
0: mouth. By the word of the Lord were all the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of His mouth. Every last one, all of it, the whole universe. So when you go outside and you look at the universe, you look at the Milky Way, and you see the vast of it, there's another scripture where it says that God has a name for every star. All right, And can you imagine it when you, when you look at the vastness of the universe? So, the biblical doctrine is this, to reiterate. God created the world out of nothing. God holds the universe together by the word of His power. God has acted in history and revealed Himself first to the patriarchs, well, it starts with here, actually, first to Abel, Adam and Eve, and Abel, or the first two people of faith mentioned in the Bible in Hebrews 11, are Abel and Enoch. <coughs> so it goes before the patriarchs. God has spoken clearly and authoritatively. He revealed himself to the Jewish people. He gave the law through Moses. He predicted that he'd send Messiah, his own son. He sent Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnate. Jesus Christ spoke. He did many miracles to prove He was God. He predicted His own resurrection from the dead. He was raised from the dead. He appeared in His resurrection body to many witnesses. And He left those witnesses to write the New Testament for us, which is His words. And we have been given this authoritative document, the Old and New Testaments, that tell us the very words of God. By faith, we understand that God prepared the world out of nothing. And uh, blessed are eyes that see and ears that hear. Because many wise men and women study these things and go away fools. So may God give us this strong faith that is spoken of in Hebrews. Now, we'll, we'll do some of these trust references next week, and then I want to get into the record of people of faith and how God worked in their lives and why they make a good example for us.